I'm Nick Burns. Welcome to Radioactive, KRCL's show for grassroots activists, for community builders, for punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere. We, of course, are your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, and you can hit us online, krcl.org. Tonight on the show, Yellowstone National Park, our first national park this month, wow, celebrating its 150th anniversary. And on Radioactive, we want to, hey, we want to join in with that celebration with the author of a new book, Saving Yellowstone. Historian Megan Kate Nelson has written an in-depth look at the creation of the park in 1872 during the demise and the abandonment of the South during Reconstruction, the westward expansion of the Northern Pacific, and also Lakota Chief Sitting Bull's moves to protect his land and people. Later on the show, there's a new exhibition at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts up at the University of Utah called Transcending Time and Space. And we'll talk with one of the artists in that show. But right now, joining us to discuss her book, Saving Yellowstone, Megan Kate Nelson is a writer and a historian living in the Northeast, but she focuses her work on US Western history, the Civil War and American culture. Her previous book, The Three-Cornered War, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Megan Kate Nelson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you, thank you. Saving Yellowstone, you know, it, it reads like historical fiction, but you've created a completely researched, completely historical book. Uh, there's 100 pages of notes and citations at the end. And, you know, from the beginning, when we start with a half-frozen, half-starving guy crawling across the Yellowstone Basin, you know, honestly, I was hooked. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. I I really wanted to bring readers kind of onto the ground with all of the major figures in the book in Saving Yellowstone and really give you a sense of what it was like to be you know, traversing through this amazing place uh, in 1871 and 72, uh, and also moving back and forth between Yellowstone and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and Philadelphia and South Carolina, sort of major places uh, shaping the narrative. And that was something that really engaged me, I'll be honest. You, you tell these three parallel intertwined stories. There's the railroad and banking magnate Jay Cook and D.C. politics and Reconstruction, and then, of course, the super engaging, at least for me, someone who loves Yellowstone Park, the story of Professor Hayden, who's the guy leading these investigations into the wonders of the Yellowstone Basin, which most people thought were some sort of fantasy until he went there with, with cameras and artists. And then, of course, Sitting Bull in the Lakota, and you blend these all together as three equal stories. And, of course, that's not how the history is told these days, because the winners tell the story. But I wonder how, what what led you to want to construct the book as you did these three stories going around each other? Yeah, you know, when I was finishing up the Three Cornered War, I started thinking about what was next. And I had been researching one of the protagonists in that book, John Clark, who is a surveyor general of New Mexico Territory. And so I was doing background research and surveys and surveying and ran into this 1871 scientific survey to Yellowstone uh, that Hayden led. And I had actually studied it before in art mm. history classes in grad school. So I knew uh, and it was kind of reminded in this moment of the great surveys of this period. And 
then kind of realized, well, wait a minute, these are happening in the wake of an incredibly destructive civil war. They're happening in the middle of reconstruction, which is a period that we usually associate with the South, not the West. And so why, my, you know, one of my big questions going in was, why would the, the US Congress in this moment, when everything was still pretty chaotic uh, and they were dealing with a lot of, of major crises in economics and politics and, and life on the ground in the South, why would they give Ferdinand Hayden $40,000 to go to Yellowstone <laughs> to investigate it for science? And then why six months later would they pass the Yellowstone Act which was an unprecedented piece of legislation that created the first national park in the world. Uh, and, yeah. and those were the questions that really drove me in the book. Yeah, very good. And I mean, like I said, you've written a book, it's full of narrative descriptions and dialogue and, you know, the folding boat that they pack in on mules mm -hmm. to go around Yellowstone Lake and on and on. But it's all totally researched from primary sources, secondary sources, newspaper articles and so on. Um, and you do write a little bit about Yosemite. Yosemite was some public mm -hmm. land around the same time. We had Niagara Falls, a great big, huge, I'll say, tourist attraction. Yep. But you really get into this why Yellowstone. And that's what I think you have an angle on that that I found mm -hmm. really fascinating. Um, and it sounds like you sort of had that in mind going in. I did, because this this became another question for me as I was writing, because there was Niagara already and Congress had already saved Yosemite in a slightly different way. They had given it to the state of California to manage in 1864. So they hadn't done what they were proposing to do in the Yellowstone Act, which was to take this land from a state or territory and give it to the federal government to manage. Right. It's a, it's a different kind of land taking and giving. And so. My question was, you know, why in this moment, when we knew about all of these other places, why would they save Yellowstone specifically? And what I really determined is, you know, when when Ferdinand Hayden came out of there in the fall of 1871 with 45 boxes of specimens and all of these photographs that William Henry Jackson had taken and sketches that Thomas Moran would turn later into some of the most epic landscape paintings uh, in American history, he really showed to Americans that this was a place, Yellowstone was a place that was unique in the world. And I think that people in this moment, white Americans in particular, were really looking for something like that. They were looking for a place that would prove to them the exceptional nature of America um, and would kind of enter this narrative of what I call in the book uh, and what environmental historians and art historians have called nature's nation. Uh, where Americans kind of, we don't have the, the ruins of Europe, right? And the thousands of years. Instead, we have these amazing natural features. And those are what prove to us our national superiority, our national uniqueness. And I think in the wake of the Civil War, people were looking for something like this. They were looking for a place to believe in. And that place was Yellowstone. Yeah, I mean, not to be cynical, but one could almost say squirrel, and everybody looks in a different direction, right? But I was really, you really hooked me with that, this notion of how Yellowstone Park was a way for white Americans. And I don't, I mean, we can talk about Sitting Bull and what was going on as the railroad came through what, what the Lakota considered their lands. But this notion of American exceptionalism, we have, you know, the, the mini, the mini Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, we have the geysers, and it makes us exceptional and it makes us 
it gives us a right to own all that. It, it, it furthered mm-hmm. manifest destiny, I guess one could say, that the Absolutely. very landscape makes us destined for greatness. And of course, the railroads love that, right? The railroads mm-hmm. wanted the land. That's what Jay Cook was super anxious for. Uh, but I was so engaged that this notion of American exceptionalism and the riot at the Capitol a year ago and on and on and on, mm-hmm. this notion of somehow white America is the bee's knees, it comes out of, you know, old faithful spouting every hour. It's kind mm-hmm. of amazing. It is. It is. And it, it tells us something interesting about science in this moment, you know, that that people were investigating lands and doing experiments and making scientific discoveries on the one hand for its own sake, for the sake of knowledge, right? Um, But then there was this other aim to it. And science was very much a part of the process of settler colonialism. You know, a lot of these surveys that were going out into the West at this time were meant to help politicians and white Americans in general understand what was in the West and how they could develop it, how they could use it, how they could take those lands from native peoples and turn them toward farming and ranching and business and other forms of development that would bring them fully into the American nation. And science was helping with that. This is, you know, one of Ferdinand Hayden's projects and his explicit orders from the Department of the Interior were to learn as much as possible about this place, uh, not only just for the sake of that, but so that Congress could decide what to do with it. Um, right. It, it could. It- Oh, I'm going to say it. I'm sorry, but it could make America great, right? <laughs> That's oh. right. That's right. But I think also, I think Americans also had a sense, and Fernand Hayden definitely had a sense that this place also revealed something about America that was a, a, a tension, right? That there, there was all of this amazing, unique uh, geothermal activity. Um, And it was showing itself a bit on the surface, but it was just a small indicator of this chaos and sort of roiling violence underneath the surface. And so I thought that was really interesting, too. And and Yellowstone is a place in the book, uh, but it is also a metaphor for for what America is in 1871. And then also, I think, what it still remains today, which is a place that is both beautiful and terrible, you know, that really draws you in with everything that is great about it, but also has things lying beneath your feet uh, that can bring you down. And, you know, that Hayden and his team were very much aware of that when they were moving through Yellowstone and wrote about it all the time and wrote about that tension. So that interested me as well. Yeah, I mean, every 50,000 years, more or less, and we're actually about due for the basin to blow again. So yes, there is a metaphor (laughs) for the United States today. And of course, for those who've studied geology in high school and whatnot, the whole Columbia River Basin and whatnot, Mm -hmm. all of that geologic formation basically comes out of the the previous blows of Mm -hmm. Yellowstone Basin and the surrounds in Idaho. But, But we digress from your book. So I want to ask about the Lakota under Sitting Bull, Mm -hmm. and it's a critical third of your book, and it's a story that doesn't get told much, as we were saying. How were you able to research that and bring that so alive, what Sitting Bull was doing um, with his other chiefs and with all the various Lakota tribes? 
Well, I was really lucky to have two kind of source bases at my disposal. The first and the most important uh, were oral histories and histories coming from the Lakota people themselves and from Lakota historians and descendants of Sitting Bull who had published uh, for you know my use and for all other people who are non-native um, uh, stories of Sitting Bull and his actions, his leadership, his early life, how he became uh, such a revered and powerful leader among his people, um, which was a process that sort of began in the late 1850s, but he really started to emerge as a powerful voice in the, the mid 1860s and early 1870s. And so first that there was that source base, which was really fantastic. And then there's another source base, which is embedded in the Northern Pacific Railroad records, the records of Jay oh. Cook, uh, and the records of territorial official, officials and Indian agents who became increasingly worried about the Lakota during this period because of Sitting Bull's leadership, because he was bringing together uh, not only the members of his own band, the Hunkapa Lakota, but also uh, other Lakota kin and allies, and also Cheyenne and Arapaho allies. And he was really building a very strong coalition that was resisting any kind of trespassing on their land, which at this time was huge. It extended from the Missouri River all the way to the, the Yellowstone Basin. And so he was increasingly uh, active about defending his people's sovereignty uh, and their ownership of those lands. And so we see him in this book. Uh, we don't know if he was really aware of Hayden's survey, uh, mm. But he was very much aware of the surveyors who Jay Cook sent uh, to try and map a route right through the heart of their homelands. Uh, and he surveilled those surveyors. Uh, he attacked them. He pushed them successfully uh, from his territory in 71, 72, and 73. It, it's pretty fascinating that, you know, his, his people were easily able to see what Jay Cook and everyone was doing without being found out. But share that story where at one point Sitting Bull is a little bit concerned over some of the other sort of sub chiefs kind of usurping some of his power when he sort of doesn't want to engage in a battle that these maybe younger, more gung-ho people want to do. And in the middle of this battle, he goes out in front of everybody and just sits there. Yes. And the, there's there's cavalry troops shooting and he just sits there. And of course, he doesn't get shot and it blows everybody away, literally. Yeah. And he's easily able to assume command of all the Lakota again. It's a pretty yeah. amazing. I it mean, really I, is. I, I don't want to compare overly, but you think of what Zelensky is doing in the Ukraine by refusing to leave mm -hmm. while the shells fall. And mm -hmm. here was Sitting Bull sitting in a field on a hillside while yes. the bullets are flying calmly, no less. <laughs> oh yes, very calmly, smoking a pipe. Yeah, and, I mean, and yeah, challenging other uh, young men around him to come and join him. And, and this was what was interesting to me. I mean, I think Sitting Bull is, is obviously well-known and he, he perhaps is the most well-known person in the book, uh, more well-known even than Jay Cook or, or certainly for Dan Hayden in terms of just the American consciousness. Uh, but I think he is most kind of famous for uh, the Battle of Greasy Grass, Little Bighorn in 76. And then his, you know, fights with the American government and moving into Canada and coming back and ultimately surrendering and then, you know, dying right before wounded knee in 1890. Um, but I thought this moment was just so incredible. And I, and I argue in the book that 
that this is the moment that sort of starts him on the road to Little Bighorn and starts uh, the Lakota people and the U.S. Army on that road. And um, because the U.S. Army is protecting these surveyors. And but what I also thought was interesting is that just as you noted, Sitting Bull is he's facing this great threat uh, from white Americans, um, from railroad surveyors and from soldiers, um, government officials. Uh, but he's also facing quite a bit of uh, resistance and challenge within his own band and uh, within a larger Lakota community. And that actually is indicative. I mean, in so many American histories, you think, oh, Sitting Bull was an undisputed leader of the Lakota people. But when you really study the history of that tribal nation, um, you know, leadership was not invested in one person. You know, that's that's an American model, right? I mean, there are uh, there were many chiefs, uh, there were many leaders uh, who were religious leaders, uh, war leaders, community leaders. They all had different voices, and they disagreed. And sometimes they would disagree and and kind of go their own way, and that was accepted and acceptable. Uh, you did not have to, uh, you know, express your loyalty to just one person. So it, I thought it was really interesting that in this moment, he is also facing a lot of challenge from within. And so in this battle uh, at Arrow Creek in, in August of 1872, you know, the young men have, have completely ignored the advice of the older council of which he is a part, and they attack the surveying team on their own uh, across a river. And uh, and so City Bull sort of drawn into that that battle, not really wanting to. Uh, he was very careful when whenever he chose to make war upon either uh, U.S. troops or indigenous enemies like the Crow, they always wanted to do so with an advantage. And he didn't believe that they had an advantage in that battle. Um, but late in the day, uh, as they were set up on this on this bluff, he was, you know, getting some resistance, he wanted to withdraw uh, because he thought he saw that his men were not going to achieve anything that day. And, you know, there was resistance from within the ranks. And so he just, you know, he said, you don't, don't, you know, assault my bravery and my reputation. And so he just gets off his horse and goes and walks down the bluff and just sits down, as you noted. And it's just this incredible moment. And, and as you said, no one could believe it. They were amazed. This was a a different form of bravery to go and just sit in the line of fire and just endure. And then he just got up and calmly walked back to his horse. And then he said, we're retreating. And everyone said, and everyone's like, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it makes you wonder what the, what the soldiers who are again on the other side of the river and all that, it made you wonder what they thought of that. On the one hand, here's this crazy indigenous guy, but on I, the other hand, kind of like, like whoa. What? Yeah. What is he doing? doing yeah. that just you know that was not in any kind of uh, manual for warfare um that any americans had seen anyway um but and a lot of the the soldiers who were posted at these army forts had some experience in indigenous warfare and so they they knew that it was a different kind of battle uh than perhaps yeah. the battles that they themselves had engaged in against uh usually more Confederate uh, enemies during the Civil War. Uh, it was a different kind of conflict. Um, but yes, I think they were, they very much respected his bravery and respected Lakota bravery in all of their engagements during this period. This is Radioactive on your Community Connection, 90.9 FM. I'm speaking with the author of Saving Yellowstone, Megan Kate Nelson. March 1st marked National 
park's 150th anniversary, Yellowstone Park being the very first park in the United States. The land, of course, has been around for millions of years, but the area that's now the park was formerly, of course, protected as the first U.S. National Park in 1872, and here we are at the 50th anniversary. So Megan, Kate, Nelson, before we leave completely, I want to ask a little bit about Jay Cook and the Northern Pacific and so on. Um, but there's President Grant, who was also in your book. And one thing I learned was that, and I didn't know this either, that Grant had this fantasy or this idea, I should say, of creating an entire state out west where you just put all the indigenous people, all the Lakota, all the Crow, all the Navajo, everybody could just live together. And it's rather a limited concept of all the disparate cultures that had been around for thousands of years. But again, it's a story that's, that, that doesn't come up in that sort of white Western expansionist view of, as we were saying, manifest destiny. Right. But he did have a plan, so to speak. He did. And, you know, this was what was so interesting about Grant. I think Grant is going through a little bit of a renaissance right now um, after Ron Chernow's biography and, and people are starting to reassess his presidency. You know, he's had a pretty bad reputation up to this point as, you know, an inept drunk and his, uh, Nepotism, both of yeah. his terms, you know, rife with corruption. Uh, and, you know, the corruption part was true, but um, he had these moments uh, in 1871 in particular, 71 and 72, he made these rather extraordinary appointments. One, uh, Ely Parker, who was Seneca, who had been on his staff during the Civil War and very famously had written out uh, the surrender papers uh, at Appomattox. And he appointed him commissioner of Indian affairs. And this was the highest office that any indigenous person had held up to that point or would hold uh, for you know many years after the fact. And Ely Parker was the one who had suggested this to him. Uh, he, you know, Parker was definitely an assimilationist. He believed in reservations. He wanted uh, Native people to kind of give up their, in, their traditional ways, move on to reservations and become quote unquote civilized. And so he was, he was pushing that model, but he had this idea that if they collected Native people into one territory or perhaps a couple, that those could actually be territories that would then become states. And indigenous peoples would have representation in Congress, uh, not only with territorial delegates during that phase, but then also with, with representatives and, and senators. And that idea just, I mean, it kind of blew me away that they were even considering that, but Grant did consider it uh, until Ely Parker was pushed out uh, by members of the Republican Party for his, you know, these progressive ideas. And, and Grant just seemed to give up on it. And, and if there's one conclusion that I can make about him, I think it's that he liked to consult with people. He chose some interesting people to consult with him on matters. Um, he was not a great politician, but he did listen to people with good ideas. But once they stopped pushing him, then he would often just give up the plan. And so that's what he did in the South as well. He had made this rather extraordinary appointment there with Amos Ackerman, who was attorney general and had really under Ackerman's influence uh, and support had gone after the KKK in South Carolina and had greenlit uh, this campaign against them to arrest KKK members and then put them on trial for conspiracy to undermine the 14th and 15th amendment rights of black Southerners. and. That was going along very well. And then suddenly he fired Ackerman um, 
in December of 1871. And after that point, never really recaptured this kind of high tide moment of using the federal government to protect the rights of the most vulnerable citizens in the country. Um, so I thought that story was really interesting. I thought this was an amazing moment for Grant uh, and that you know, we don't often talk about his politics in the West, yeah. uh, but I think we should because they're really fascinating. And you you bring that story out too that I didn't know that you know Custer and the Seventh Cavalry before they were moved out west and again they're completely wiped out as you mentioned at Greasy Grass only four years after your book, but Custer and the Seventh had been in the Carolinas pushing back against the rise of the KKK, and Grant again moved the resources out west with and of course Reconstruction then completely fell apart after Grant, but. It, I, I was fascinated by that, that, that Custer is famous for, you know, doing this, what many consider stupid move, although he had done it once before and it worked. It didn't work at, at Greasy Grass because he didn't know how many Native people he was up against. But before we leave, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but before we leave the Indigenous folks and the West, and I want to ask a little bit about Jay Cook, one thing you don't get into in your book is, is the Buffalo, is Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show, which yeah. was a little <laughs> bit of where Sitting Bull ends up in between moving on the right. reservation and eventually being shot by Lakota police. Um, right. Kind of an interesting time for, I mean, Sitting Bull, what a character. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody's show was an incredible force in American culture that really shaped the way people were thinking about the West in this moment, but also gave us this very specific picture of the West that we still have, right, of uh, cowboys and Indians and gunfights and stagecoach uh, uh, robberies and all these things. And, you know, those were present in the West, but we also had railroad, a huge railroad network uh, by 1883 throughout the West, lots of towns, lots of um, farms and ranches and uh, indigenous reservations and, you know, the West fully taking shape as a place of real diversity and people kind of moving in all directions. Um, but yeah, Cody's, Cody's show, uh, I thought that was maybe a little too much to get into in the, no, no, <laughs> the back was, half of the book. Yeah, it's just it, it's it just speaks to his amazing life. Um, yes, and and going from you know this life with the bison to traveling throughout Europe on a train with this Wild West show. But real quickly, only a few minutes left. If we have time, I'll ask about the show Yellowstone for what it's worth. Oh, um, yes. Formerly shot here in Park City and in Utah and also in Montana. But Jay Cook. Jay Cook, of course, was very anxious to move his railroad, the Northern Pacific. He ended up sort of suffering and losing a bunch of money. But he also, and I think this would be of interest to our listeners here in the Intermountain West, the Intermountain West also gave him his fortune back again. Yes, it did. Um, Jay Cook is, is also just such an interesting figure. And when I figured out that I wanted to write about him doing research into his whole life was was just really, really interesting. You know, he made he was just a, a instinctive math genius. He understood business and he left school as a teenager to become a bank clerk. And by 1860, he had started his own investment bank and during the Civil War made millions of dollars selling U.S. war bonds to support the war effort, the Union war effort. And 
you know, after the war, he was really casting about for a project of similar patriotic meaning. And he founded in the Northern Pacific, which was meant to be the second transcontinental line. It was called the Centennial Line. It was supposed to be finished in 1876 to celebrate the, the anniversary of the country. And he just, no, his friends actually couldn't believe that he took on the financing of that railroad in 1870 because it was just a really bad idea. It's not, railroads are terrible investments during this period um, because- Boom and bust, a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in order to, to attract investors, you have to be able to give them land, but in order to give them land, you have to build track. But without investors, you can't build track. And so it's this- terrible circular issue and he was just really struggling and so he really wanted to know what Hayden was finding in Yellowstone because he wanted to run his track right north of there and so he sent Thomas Moran to go join the expedition uh, he told Hayden we'll support you in any way that we can he helped Hayden to lobby for the Yellowstone Act and was really quite invested in that project as, as well as the Northern Pacific but he, he completely underestimated Sitting Bull's willingness to fight, uh, as Sherman said, for every foot of the line. And ultimately, he ended up loaning that railroad his own money from his investment bank, which led pretty directly to the disaster of 1873, uh, where his, his bank imploded and the nation was plunged into panic and depression. Right. Basically, his... <clears throat> Kind of reminds you of the 1980s and the, yes. the 2000 aughts. But as you point out at the very end of the book, he ended up making money back again with mm -hmm. a silver mine in Park City, Utah. Yes, he did. So it's like he the made rich one, continue to get yeah. rich. Yeah, uh. he, he had, you know, he had to sell off his mansion and all of his everything that he owned, basically. But then he made this one really good investment uh, in silver and it paid off and he ended up making enough money back to buy uh, his summer house he bought it, right? Lake Erie back and to go on a, a railroad trip on the Northern Pacific, which was finally completed in 1883, <laughs> uh, and to take it to the coast and back again, and, and basically then claim uh, responsibility for, right. <laughs> for its completion oh. and having the idea in the first place. <laughs> well, so Megan, Kate Nelson, it's a very readable book. Um, and I really... You know, when I opened it, I thought it would be about saving Yellowstone today, and I was going to be mm. reading about wolves and bison and fires. But then I got into this fantastic story that you tell. You know, with Yellowstone, the TV show, and Kevin Costner now has this doc, I think, History mm -hmm. Channel. Have yes. they reached out to you? Are you going to get any money from that? Uh, well, I, I am paying attention to that, and I'm okay. trying to figure out how I can get the book into Kevin Costner's hands and to become part of that project. I've, I've worked with the History Channel before on a couple of projects, so I'm, I'm going to make some inquiries because I think they need to know. I mean, Yellowstone is an interesting show. I actually think it's a pretty good modern Western. Um, it has, I mean, it's it's, it's a melodrama. Yeah, it's a right? murder melodrama. The amount yeah. of people they kill is just insane. Um, and certain parts of it are just ridiculous. But the focus on the ranching industry is actually quite embedded in reality. And I, I haven't really seen before that depiction of cowboys as actual workers, as itinerant workers with no health insurance, uh, who are, you know, out there getting up at five in the morning and working all day long. I mean, it, that is a very interesting component of that show. Um, and, you know, 
Taylor Sheridan, I think, has a specific vision of the West that he he likes uh, to cling to, especially in that new show, 1883, which is the prequel yeah. to Yellowstone. Um, but it, but I think it's interesting, and I think it's an interesting addition to the genre. Um, I didn't know that parts of it were were filmed in in Utah, and of course, you know, as you know from Saving Yellowstone, Utah plays a, a very important part, um, Salt Lake City and Ogden in particular, in uh, the whole survey itself yeah, it was, of Yellowstone. It was really fun to read that that they basically end up in Ogden and then make their way north up to yes. Virginia City and so on, and then down into the park, what became the park from the north. So that's actually a very readable part of your book for folks who know this neck of the woods. Um, I know we have to let you go and we can't keep chatting, but I'm intrigued that you live in the Northeast, but you really love mm -hmm. writing about the West. Yes, I'm actually, I'm from Colorado. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, born and raised. So um, even though I have lived uh, in other places, mostly the East Coast, uh, for longer than I have lived in Colorado, I still consider it my home place. And whenever I, whenever I go back and I see those mountains and I'm in the dry air with all that sunshine, I'm just, oh. uh, it feels like I'm home. Okay, well then, okay, we'll accept you as a Mountain <laughs> West resident by proxy since you're originally <laughs> from here. The book is Saving Yellowstone, the author Megan Kate Nelson. Again, it's a really, it's a really fun read. I mean, it's just, it's a page turner, even though it's this book of history. So thank you for the way you put that together. Your previous book, Three Cornered War, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Good luck with this one, really. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me on. And your next book, if uh, come back, let's chat again. Oh, absolutely. I will. And, and we'll have this up as a streamer. You know, you can stream this at krcl.org as of tomorrow. And if you can oh, use great. that to parlay an audience with Costner and the History Channel, <laughs> by all means do it. I will let you know. I'll keep you updated. Okay. Megan, Kate, Nelson, thank you very much for being on Radioactive. The book, Saving Yellowstone. Thank you. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Nelson's book. We'll have it there. And when we come back, artist David Rios Ferreira, whose exhibit Transcending Time and Space opens at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts Acme Lab this weekend. But first, a song from Utah's own Gigi Love. This is Yellowstone Wind on Radioactive KRCL. We crossed the Great Divide two times. Now we're on the Pacific side, heading out to Madison tonight. Lone Star geyser shot up in the sky, I swear It was 40 feet high in a meadow Full of purple laughing flowers The wind was soft upon my skin The water beckoned, come on in Yellowstone wind Through the geysers and spires Where the water boils over fills our desire to see something wild perfect and free oh Yellowstone blow the wild back to me as many as two million people have been displaced in Ukraine the Utah Ukrainian Association has a list of ways you can help Find them on Facebook under the handle Love Ukrainians or the Connect page of krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
This is Gianni from the Dirty Boulevard. Every Thursday night from 10.30 to 1 o'clock in the morning, we stroll down this petulant street, playing all sorts of French Malay, to Brit Pop, to Jazz Badass, to Rock Immortals and Song Genius. There is occasional moderate sarcasm and social mockery, and a Tom Waits shanty every show. Thursday nights at 10.30 on KRCL 90.9 FM, your community radio station. He's going out. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns, and this is Your Community Connection, 90.9 FM KRCL and krcl.org. Transcending Time and Space. That's the name of the new show at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, Acme Lab. It opens March 19th, and joining us is David Rios Ferreria, and I'm sorry I have trouble with that diphthong in your last name. You are a visual artist, you're an independent curator, you're a museum professional. Your work examines how the past informs the present. And just to unpack that a little bit, you're interested in issues of power, of colonial history, the issue of missing and murder, murdered indigenous and LGBTQ plus people. You dip into historical etchings, old political cartoons, coloring books, and more, which you sort of combine and reprocess through layering and tracing and collages. Um, and I think you try to create sort of new forms and new bodies, and I think new futures. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So transcending time and place, and I'll just quote this, quote, looks at community art making, imagined time travel and spirituality as a vehicle for thinking about love, loss, and memory, end quote. Yeah. Okay, that kind of blows my mind. Um, <laughs> and I really feel bad we're on the radio because we can't have all these visuals in front of us while we talk, but we'll put a we'll put a representation in the show notes. But to jump in, tell me about art and spirituality, or at least for you, your art and spirituality. Yeah, I mean, I think with regards to spirituality, that really stems from this examination I've done throughout my practice that's that starts with myself, that starts with me, my upbringing, my family background. Um, my family's from Puerto Rico, um, of mixed race. And um, there's this term that we use in uh, Latino culture where we refer to this idea of the mestizo, which is this mixed identity of the indigenous, the African, and the European colonialist. And you know, there's a lot of writing out there and a lot of sort of examination by artists like, you know, like-minded artists like myself and others that continue to examine that and unpack that. And sometimes that's looking at the variations in which those play out. And for me growing up, that was spirituality. Spirituality meant, you know, there was yeah, growing up, uh, growing up Roman Catholic, we had uh, the kinds of ceremonies and the kinds of um, experiences you would have when you go to church. And then at home, we had a different set of practices that were indigenous and African um, based in nature and in, and, in, and in the forms that it took. Um, and so spirituality has always played a part just in my upbringing. And in some ways, I think about it in terms of creating these images. I, I like to say I'm an image maker, meaning that I'm creating images that I hope elicit something for the viewer. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I, I use a lot of appropriated imagery. Um, and that imagery stems from uh, children's books, animation, pop cultural imagery, 
to historical reinterpretations, uh, maybe sometimes an attempt at a um, documentation of a moment, to Mm -hmm. political cartoons that are racial and, and stereotypical and quite problematic. And I take all these images and I take them apart and pull them together, almost like the way you would imagine collage. And they need, you know, for me, they take different forms. For a while, they took uh, very figurative forms, but with this particular project, with Transcending Time and Space, and the fact that it's being held at the Acme Lab at the uh, Utah Museum of Fine Arts, you know, the Acme Lab is really about helping bring the community into this realm of contemporary art and thinking about their both their role in, in you know, engaging contemporary art, but also I like to think in their way of, of creating art. Um, and so looking for that entry point where, you know, I kind of saw this as a public work. I've done some public works prior to this experience and found that I needed to get to know something about the space, something about the community, um, connecting to a people and really thought this reflection, especially at the time that we were discussing this exhibit, we were still steeped in the very, you know, challenging time of the pandemic. Um, and this idea of loss was pretty, pretty heavy on people's minds. But, you know, thinking about how people could connect through art, you know, and, and let me back up with this idea of these found images, that, that these are someone's hands, right? Somebody drew these, somebody created these images. And so I kind of think that there is this spiritual um, sort of back and forth and dialogue that I'm having as I'm creating these forms, whatever forms they take. Well, I mean, drawing from history, drawing from the past, again, it sounds like to talk to the president, to communicate with the future. I wonder how how do you see that your work using these found images and whatnot, how do you see your work doing that perhaps differently than other artistic styles? Because, you know, I could think of abstract expressionism as really a comment on the past, moving into the present and the future. But your pieces, I think, work in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a power in the familiar, even if you can't pinpoint it. Mm. And I, that's something I've always been interested in my work. And this is also why I use the kind of images that I do, uh, the kind of selections that I make in the, the line qualities. You know, sometimes a simple broad line alludes to maybe a cartoon you may or may not remember. Um, to see an etching of a foot from a colonial newspaper or a paper around the colonial times might sort of elicit something in your memory. And I think that what I hope to do is elicit these different memories. And maybe as you start to dig a little deeper and see the images get clearer and more precise as you examine the work, that it starts to bring things up and hopefully encourages you to do a little research and think about the different issues that are being explored in variety of my work, but in this particular body of work, looking at this connection to the connection from colonialism to how that impacts our deed, you know, our daily lives and our day, you know, what's happening right now in this present time. Yeah. And we see that play out in a lot of different ways. And in particular, the ongoing tragedy of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls being I think a very real example of how we're seeing the colonialist impact in you know, present day and present time and how it's being played out from 
a lack of data that we have around the numbers of people who are missing all the way to the follow-up from authorities and investigating these, uh, these missing people. Yeah. So tell me about your collaborator because your show includes another artist and their work and their writing. And I think that kind of collaboration can be very impactful when we often think of artists as working alone in, in their studios. Yeah. And, and in the end, you know, ultimately I am one of those artists that works in the studio alone. And I think it was really an exciting opportunity both to work with the Acme Lab and then for them to make the introduction, um, you know, uh, the curator, uh, Jorge Rojas, who brought me on to the Acme Lab and UMFA, you know, when hearing about this interest in, um, or rather this motivation I had to explore these issues around missing and murdered individuals, uh, brought you know connected me me with uh, Dinesh Shandin who's working who's a, whose work in uh with her organization Restoring Ancestral Winds works to both um further inform this narrative that continues to be marginalized in our country but also it's specifically working with um the Salt Lake and the Great Basin and you know right out the gate it was just a simple um series of conversations we wanted to connect as people Okay. Um, I think early, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when I thought about this project as a public artwork, I think of public artworks as needing some kind of anchor, whether that's uh, a, a community that I'm connected to, um, but there's also a visual anchor that comes along with that. And in talking with Danae and, and learning more about her work and also just sharing our personal stories. I mean, honestly, we, we did a lot of just personal sharing around our upbringing and the kinds of things that we felt connected to both um, as people, but also um, as spiritual beings and thinking about how that connects to this idea. Um, and in the end, you know, looking at how we can both look, talk about this subject, but also open it up to others who maybe are not familiar with the subject, but also may have experienced loss. What could that visual anchor be for everyone? And it ended up being a circle. And so all these found objects and all these found images that I use in my work, everyone, you know, I believe everyone has the ability to do this, you know, to take apart images that they're familiar with, memories, you know, writing, you know, people have so many different connections to their loved ones and to put them in this, you know, circle that ultimately is, you know, when I kind of think of the science fiction, fantastical element of having this ability, this superpower, to create this ring that ultimately is a gateway to someone that we lost. Um, you know, Danae and, and our conversations continue to feed that idea. And when you go to the exhibit, her writing really sets the stage for the various gateways and portals that I worked on, that people in the community worked on, that her and I worked on. Um, she really sets the stage of how that speaks to both you know, our understanding of spirituality and, and loved ones, but also the issues around uh, this, this tragedy of murdered and missing Indigenous people. Yeah. And I'll point out, Danae is a friend of Radioactive and has been on our show many times, including just in the last couple of weeks. This is Radioactive on your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL. We're talking with artist David Rios Ferreira. Transcending Time and Place is your new exhibit up at the UMFA in the Acme Lab. And I want to ask about your own sort of process 
Um, I know you've got a collaborator in Danae on this show, but you create these two-dimensional pieces, as you mentioned, circles, a very Jungian um, in, in terms of a wholeness as well as a portal, but you create these two-dimensional pieces on polypropylene, and that's rigid sheets, right? You, you're not working on like a fabric. Correct. That they're actually um, sign material, material that is you. What you would do is print what it was like outdoor signs for restaurants or events. Okay. Um, and it's a funny thing to discover. I really was really excited about the bringing in this science fiction fantastical element of the narrative. Uh, again, this idea that we have this power, this sort of like cosmic power to be able to create these gateways. Then I wanted to somehow emit that through the work. And I just found working, uh, creating imagery digitally and having it printed on this material. And then I would then go in and paint and collage on it um, to give it even more depth and um, more complexity. But the polypropylene just, it's just beautiful, gives off, especially they're, they're, for those who can't, you know, who hopefully see the show, they're very colorful, really abstracted rings made of this like, grass pouring from them and colors and they're sitting on a black background and that black is just a beautiful dark satin and in the exhibition um the ex great exhibitions team we were able to have them mounted into this very cosmic um stellar uh, stars and stardust floating in the space so you're kind of you're kind of entering a trans somewhat transformed environment as we explore all these different gateways yeah, very good. I, I, I would throw out that for many KRCL listeners of a certain age, they might find your work a bit psychedelic at times. Perhaps, yeah. But you mentioned this notion of time travel and, I, and time travel and art. It, it, ever since, you know, we booked the show to be able to chat with you today, I've been having a hard time wrapping my mind around that because, you know, I've seen about 100 sci-fi movies about time travel. And you well explained this notion of how art can bring us from the past to the present to the future. But for your art specifically in this notion of circles and portals and time travel, what can you share about that? Well, so the exhibit is called um, Transcending Time and Space. And that comes from a, um, a quote or a series of conversations in the sci-fi film Interstellar. And what I what I really thought, well, first of all, I'm a big I'm, I'm a I can't say I'm a sci fi buff, but I really love when science fiction brings in an element of humanity and sort of the emotional complexity of, of humans and how we might engage or encounter these sort of unworldly situations. And in Interstellar, I really loved how the, I, the concept of love was talked about with regards to time right so in the film they're bending time they talk up they explain wormholes in fact i think they got an award for uh, the most accurate depiction of a wormhole and but connecting that to this idea of love and if time can be bent and shaped and move across great distances um like that time light all of that love can do the same and that you can your love for someone whether they're on this plane still or no longer that love goes beyond you know its existence and sort of i think enters some really interesting ideas of our and questions our understanding of reality um and so that's where that's where the time travel comes into the show is just this idea that these images and the experiences that we hope people have in the exhibit 
get us to think about love in a slightly different way. And and even with some of these portals, I like to think of them also as, as unportraits or portraits of people and many people. So not anyone in particular, but thinking about, you know, so many that we've lost, especially to this tragedy. Um, one in particular that motivated me throughout this exhibit, especially what brought me to this idea, was the Navajo teen in 2001, uh, Frederica Martinez or Freddie Martinez, who was murdered. And, you know, I, I had learned about the story in 2001 when it happened, and I was just entering my own queer journey as, you know, someone who's just beginning to understand what it meant to be open and gay and, 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 and comfortable with myself. And to learn about this 16 year old who was finding a way and had the bravery to be themselves and to lose their life to that, I never forget. And so Frederica very um, lovingly would refer to themselves sometimes as Beyonce. And so for at least six of the gateways that you see in the exhibit, they're named after uh, the titles are made up by different lyrics that I pulled from different Beyonce songs that I think really speak to this idea of fighting, you know, tra uh, this idea of working through trauma and love and loss. So what you're saying is really intriguing because I think with movies like Interstellar or the sort of sci-fi fantasy of, of time travel, you're really getting at something that, you know, time is eternal or again, a circle, not mm -hmm. linear that love we feel, whether it's someone who's been murdered, unfortunately, or missing, it is ongoing. It's, it's really outside of time. It's not so much time travel as a time constancy. And I'm not a scientist, but, but in the couple minutes that's left, thank you. Um, again, your show opens on the 19th at the Acme Lab. And I want to ask about this notion of the Acme Lab, quote, active participation, end quote, in the Acme Lab up at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. So I get a feeling your show, that your show is not like walking in a circle up the Guggenheim looking at Kandinsky's. So what can people expect at the show in terms of being engaged with your work and Danae's? Well, funny enough, it is, it is this, uh, curated sort of in a circular way. Ah. You, know, you, you encounter, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to enjoy a beautiful writing piece by Danae that then leads you to a series of gateways that I've created that she and I collaborated on. Um, and then there are gonna be opportunities for the visiting public to surf through. Um, we use this uh, open source software called Prezi, which is often used for presentations for educational purposes. I love modifying it and created this galaxy that various participants over the course of the developing of this exhibit and hopefully while the exhibit is up, will create their own gateways using similar font imagery to me or their own. And I will insert them into this galaxy and you'll be able to visit and learn a lot about all these different artworks that are created by the people in, in your community. Um, and then there's be an opportunity in real time where we created a large uh, sort of nebulous dark hole that um, is embodied by one of our, you know, one of the gateways. And you're invited to send a message to someone you love. Um, you can write it and drop it into this abyss, or you could speak into the abyss, and it would be between you and the loved one that you're trying to reach. Wow. Is this a traveling show, or is the UMFA Acme Lab a one-off for these works? Well, you know, it's launching here, and maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe it can be a traveling <laughs> show. 
Oh, no, I just, I thought of the Guggenheim in the circles, right? You're walking up the ramps there, looking at all these modern art and yeah. whatnot, but you're, you're inviting people into your work in such a different way. Um, that sort of interactivity is something that sort of the church of the museum doesn't do often. I find that right, fascinating. I think that's what's, and that's what's different about the Acme Lab. That's what's different about the team there. Um, and I will say, you know, I just, and I, I work in museums myself. I just, art is for everyone. And, and there should be platforms to welcome people into it. Well, very good. You are giving a free artist talk in conversation with Danae Shannadine. That's on Friday the 18th. Mm -hmm. We'll get all, all that into the show, note, show notes, rather. It'll be in person and live streamed. Um, a foreshadow of what people can hear at your talk, your conversation? Well, a little bit more about um, how the show came to be and a little bit more background around just my body of work in general. Some um, some examples of public works that I've done and that are coming up and how it all led to this process. Very good. So we're going to have to leave it there. David Rios Ferreira, Transcending Time and Place, featuring the work and writing of artist Danae Shanadine, opens on the 19th, runs through December 4th, a preview on Friday night, the 18th, with an artist talk with you in conversation with Danae. Thank you for taking time to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And that's a wrap, everybody. Check the tonight's show notes. You can connect with all our guests' work, questions, comments, suggestions. Please email radioactive at krcl.org. Tell us all about it. You can leave us a voicemail too, 385-800-1889. My shout out and thank you to Laura Jones, our producer on Radioactive. And we want to know what you'd like to hear on the show. So let us know. Maybe you've got a song dedication. Maybe you've got something for our playlist. I'm Nick Burns. But David, before we let you go, favorite Beyonce song that we can go out on? Oof. Um, Halo. Halo. We're going to go out on Halo by Beyonce. Next up, Democracy Now! I am Nick Burns.